You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. Over the past several years, from Boston in 2013 to Paris in 2015, and London and Barcelona in just the past few months, a number of cities have experienced a spike in deadly terrorist attacks. Collectively, these attacks have taken hundreds of lives, caused serious psychological trauma, and resulted in extensive property loss while also straining and testing public safety resources and capabilities. On October 11th, Dutch Leonard and Arnold Hatwick, faculty co-directors of the Program on Crisis Leadership at HKS, discussed their ongoing research into the terror attacks at an event titled Command Under Attack, Emergency Response to Urban Terrorism. Leonard and Hatwick offered specific case examples from several attacks as well as generalizable findings for how other urban centers can prepare for and respond to this threat going forward. This event was sponsored by the Program on Crisis Leadership, which is jointly supported by the Ash Center and Taubman Center, the Crisis Management Professional Interest Council, and by the Homeland Security Project, housed at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Let's listen in. Good afternoon, everybody. The work that Dutch and I are going to speak about this afternoon uh, comes from a a much larger uh, project that's in progress. Uh, that we hope to expand beyond what uh, we've done already. Um, And there are uh, five or more of us who are involved in that beyond Dutch and me. Uh, Christine Cole, who's the former executive director of the Kennedy School's Criminal Justice Program, now uh, vice president uh, and executive director of the Crime and Justice Institute in uh, Boston. Uh, Joe Pfeiffer, who is chief of counterterrorism and emergency preparedness. Uh, for the New York Fire Department, and David Giles, who is in the back of the room, our colleague here at PCL uh, and at the Ash Center. Um, What we'd like to do this afternoon um, is set the scene for uh, thinking about urban terrorism um, and then talk about some of the steps that can be taken to prepare uh, as well as we can uh, for these kinds of events Uh, But when attacks come, what we would like to do is think about three separate tasks that overlap, uh, 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 but each of which is independently crucial, uh, to stop the killing, uh, to stop the dying, to attend to the people uh, who uh, need medical attention um, and make sure that uh, uh, as many of them are saved as possible, and to start the healing, both the healing of individuals um, and also the healing of the uh, communities that are affected by this. Um, The kinds of attacks that we have in mind uh, would make a long list, and this is merely a selected one from some recent uh, events. Um, It includes uh, uh, the two events that we're going to speak about most extensively this afternoon, uh, the Boston Marathon bombings, and the multi-site attacks uh, in Paris, France in November of 2015. Uh, But it also includes several others that we'll talk about, San Bernardino, uh, Orlando, um, and um, Las Vegas. Uh, But other countries have uh, uh, had terrorist attacks, and this is just the beginning of a list, hardly an uh, exhaustive one. Um, In San Bernardino, for example, Uh, About two years ago, uh, a husband and wife team attacked a holiday party uh, of co-workers of the uh, uh, husband of the group. 
Uh, they killed 14 of them and seriously went, injured 22 of them. Uh, they escaped and uh, there was a, a chase um, and they were eventually uh, caught and attacked in a, uh, and killed uh, in a police assault on their vehicle. Um, in Orlando, uh, only a little more than a year ago, uh, there was a horrible attack on a <clears throat> gay nightclub. Uh, 49 people were killed, 53 wounded. Um, it involved the taking of hostages for several hours, uh, and uh, there was considerable criticism of the police for the way in which the uh, ultimate uh, assault on the terrorist was taken, was conducted, and the uh, and also the uh, time delay between the uh, uh, during which the uh, hostage taking was going on. Um, finally, just last week in uh, Las Vegas, uh, the horrible attack from the uh, towering. Um, um, Mandalay Bay um, Hotel uh, into a, uh, an open-air concert, uh, 58 people killed and uh, more than 500 uh, wounded, uh, quite a large number of them very seriously wounded. Um, what these uh, little vignettes indicate is some of the difficulty of protecting society, um, especially here uh, in the United States or other Western countries uh, that have open doors, that are uh, experiencing a constant flow of people and goods um, throughout them. Uh, they pose, as our colleague Juliet Kayyem has pointed out, they, there are simply too many soft targets uh, to protect every single one of them. Um, in my experience, I'm sure in Dutch's as well, when I've traveled and asked people uh, where might a, uh, in your area, are you worried about a terrorist attack? And people can usually rattle off a list of potential targets. Uh, certainly we at the Kennedy School uh, sometimes think of ourselves as a potential target. And indeed, uh, during the Boston Marathon bombings, the buildings were uh, evacuated because there was a false alarm of a, uh, a fire at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston, uh, which was then uh, expanded to think that perhaps everything with John Kennedy's name on it might be a target of the terrorists. Um, so in thinking about uh, protecting ourselves and uh, uh, apprehending any terrorists, uh, launching an emergency response that would be effective, we have to think about balancing uh, between uh, protection on the one hand and between and our freedoms uh, of movement, of speech, uh, uh, and of a variety of other ways that we uh, uh, exercise our liberties. Uh, and these, the tension, as we can see in the headlines uh, in the last week or so, as people talk about tightening certain rules, um, indicate what kind of problem that is. So let me look at uh, two examples of uh, urban terrorism and uh, the uh, circumstances surrounding the response uh, that we've had the opportunity to study very closely. Uh, the Boston Marathon bombings in April of 2013, which some of us remember very vividly, um, and the multi-site attacks in Paris at the end of no in the middle of November of 2015. Um, Dutch and I and Christine uh, in 
the aftermath, the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombings, were able to interview um, most of the senior uh, public safety officials that were involved uh, in the response um, to find out about uh, their tactics and uh, the problems that they faced. Uh, we did not look at the uh, criminal investigation uh, because the, that was ongoing and we didn't want to do anything that might interfere uh, with the ultimate prosecution of uh, Jokar Tsarnaev. Um, and then uh, in um, the spring of uh, 2016, uh, less than six months after the attack in Paris, we had a similar opportunity to visit Paris um, and see senior officials in the uh, police department, the fire department, the uh, medical response units, and a variety of other places um, that were uh, in charge of the response uh, in Paris on that uh, terrible night. So let me just briefly describe what happened in those two instances so we can have some data on the table. Uh, the Boston Marathon bombing uh, occurred uh, on Monday, April 15th, a holiday here in Massachusetts. Two bombs exploded uh, at the uh, finish line of the marathon. Um, that led to an, an immediate medical evacuation of the wounded people, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we move along. Um, it also began an investigation uh, that initially was uh, managed by the Boston police, but was taken over by the FBI when it was determined that this was terrorism. Um, and over the course of uh, late Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, uh, that investigation was, uh, and into Thursday, that investigation was at the forefront. On Thursday of that week, uh, President Obama made a visit to uh, um, Boston uh, and spoke at a memorial service at the uh, cathedral in Boston. Um, and uh, over the course of the day before this happened, um, the uh, criminal investigation had uncovered, had, had determined uh, that several individuals whom they had uh, photographs of from the many security cameras uh, and the uh, personal photographs that many spectators had taken, that they had determined uh, uh, were very likely the bombers, um, and they decided to release those photographs to the public. Uh, that set the uh, bombers off on an escape attempt. Uh, they uh, ambushed and assassinated an MIT police officer, Sean Collier, um, uh, late that evening, uh, and then uh, uh, hijacked an automobile, uh, drove that around for a while, uh, the owner of the car escaped when they stopped to get gas, uh, told the police after uh, a gap of some time while he was uh, being questioned that these people had claimed to be the uh, uh, Boston bombers. Um, and that set off a police effort both uh, to chase the car and recover it and capture the bombers. It led through the streets of Cambridge into Watertown um, uh, where uh, a shootout occurred uh, first with, between the Watertown police and the bombers, and then a large number of other police who came to the scene. Uh, one of the bombers was killed uh, in, during this, uh, in the aftermath of this shootout. Um, his brother escaped, um, and that set off a massive search that lasted uh, uh, for the better part through the night and into the next day. Um, there was a lockdown in Watertown in a 20-square block area. Uh, and a house-to-house -house search for the bomber that didn't turn him up. 
Uh, there also was a shelter in place in many nearby cities, including uh, Cambridge. And ultimately, uh, when the, the uh, shelter in place was called off around five o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, but shortly after that, someone just on the borderline of the search area went out to his backyard, saw that his boat uh, that was being stored there had been disturbed, saw that the, uh, uh, there was blood on the side of the, of the boat, um, reported that to the police who uh, came in massive numbers um, and uh, uh, captured the bomber after uh, another shootout in the uh, in the backyard. Um, Arne, just before you move on from that, so the the central question that Arne and I have been working on is how you organize in moments of extreme uh, stress and violence uh, across multiple agencies, because almost all these events are going to involve multiple different agencies, many of which will not necessarily have worked together before. And so we did this report on the Boston Marathon, and the, the title of which was, Why Was Boston Strong? Because we had this thing about Boston being strong, and our question was, what was it that made that happen? And we have two different kinds of answers. One is what they did on, that, on those days, on the days that are on that chart. Uh, why don't you go back to the chart just before this? Um, what did they do on those days? And then we also observed you couldn't have done those things on those days if you hadn't had a lot of preparation before that. So what's the infrastructure look like that gets you organized to be able to produce the kinds of, of uh, command and, and control structures or at least collaboration structures that were visible that week. But just the reason I wanted to come back to this slide for a second is that if you look at this slide, you see the enormous number of different events that had to be organized over the course of this week, almost all of which were either short notice or no notice events. So the, the only one that was a long notice event was the Boston Marathon itself. And you could say, well, we're sort of ready for something that happens. But, but the fact that a bomb goes off is, you know, you don't know that's going to happen at the finish line. Uh, and then uh, President Obama at the cathedral, they had about 24 hours notice that that was going to happen. That was an enormous undertaking to get organized and to make that happen. And then the rest of this begins to break on Thursday night with the no-notice event of uh, Sean Collier's execution and then the police chase and all the rest of it. So then there's this whole movable collection of different circumstances that have to be managed. And that's really the essence of these circumstances, and it shows up pretty well in that list. So these two stories uh, of Boston and Paris um, illustrate, um, and Dutch has mentioned, some of the uh, difficult problems that are faced uh, by emergency responders who uh, uh, are overtaken by unplanned events uh, that uh, uh, pose enormous challenges to them. Um, one of the things that we found uh, intellectually interesting about the Boston Marathon experience was that during the course of the week, there was an experience both of what we call a fixed event, namely an announced uh, uh, situation, the marathon itself, uh, for which people, on the one hand, uh, responders could prepare for, develop plans to protect it, uh, develop plans uh, as they had always done for the marathon for medical care uh, for people who might suffer heat exhaustion or um, orthopedic uh, injuries or heart attacks or the like, um, but also be prepared uh, for other kinds of uh, 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 emergency events that might occur, including terrorism. Um, and so we saw the, we got to see in that instance how well these plans that had been developed 
uh, some of them over the course of several years and adapted and modified how well those plans worked. Uh, but then, as Dutch noted, uh, there were a whole slew of events that uh, either had very little notice or, in the case of the escape of the terrorists, the attempted escape, uh, no notice whatsoever, and the shootouts, obviously, no notice. Uh, the Paris experience also gives at least a little bit of a flavor of fixed events with the uh, attack at the Stade de France, um, having to penetrate the security plans that were made there, uh, but then a whole series of uh, unplanned, uh, spontaneous, what seemingly spontaneous attacks that uh, required responders to act uh, in an adaptive and unplanned way. So what made this possible uh, and um, what made the uh, effectiveness of the emergency response uh, possible. In, um, in the Boston case, uh, there has been a long history of multi-agency collaboration uh, in uh, planning for these kinds of events. Uh, Boston has a number of them that recur annually, not only the marathon, but also uh, the um, celebration on New Year's Eve, um, the uh, Fourth of July concert along the Esplanade, both of which attract hundreds of thousands of people, uh, a variety of sporting events, opening day at the Red Sox, uh, uh, and a number of, of non-recurring but frequent events like presidential visits uh, or all-star games of the pro sports teams uh, and uh, visits of tall ships, etc. And the public safety agencies had worked together for uh, many years uh, not only the Boston city agencies, but also a variety of state agencies. In the case of the marathon, there's something like seven or eight communities along the 26-mile route, um, each of which has its own police department. Um, even in this area, we've got the, um, we have the state police, the Boston police, the Cambridge police, the MIT police, the Harvard police, the Watertown police, all of which um, were involved and which uh, needed to cooperate with each other. Um, and as this uh, uh, photograph depicts, uh, the leaders of these organizations, and it includes um, here the head of the FBI, uh, the uh, commissioner, the secretary of public safety for the Commonwealth, um, and a, um, the uh, police commissioner of Boston. Um, I think this is the MBTA. Uh, Pardon me? Oh, that's the chief of Watertown. Um, and a number of others uh, participated either before or during the event in, uh, in joint planning. And the result of this is that over the years, experience has accumulated. Uh, people have formed personal relationships with each other. Um, they have learned how each agency works. They have a sense of its of each agency's capabilities um, and also its shortcomings. Um, they have talked about communication systems. They have uh, ways of uh, distributing information. Um, and over time, uh, not only the senior officers work together in the planning process, but also more junior ones. And over the years, those junior people have moved up into the senior positions. Um, and the networks have, um, have uh, uh, survived and uh, uh, deepened over time as uh, this collaboration has occurred. Uh, that served them in very good stead uh, when uh, the bombs went off. And one thing that we were told by a number of uh, the people who were involved was 
uh, that they immediately realized that they had the leaders of each of the organizations, like the Boston Police Department or um, the State Emergency Management Director, uh, senior people in the uh, State Police and others, the Fire Department, they realized that they needed uh, to find each other and to begin to work with each other. And many of them were on the street uh, or their uh, second or third in command were on the street. Uh, they found each other. Um, they thought about setting up a command post on the street, but realized that it, both that uh, there was a possibility of further attacks and also that the, um, uh, there was going to be a massive evidence search in the area. So they moved to um, a hotel at the Weston Copley and took over uh, the ballroom. Ultimately, uh, as more and more people assembled in that ballroom, they took over another uh, conference room nearby and ultimately the governor led a, um, a group of uh, the most senior people up to a, uh, a hotel room many stories up so that they had some privacy. Um, one of the reasons for the proliferation of sites of the command post was that um, the senior people recognized that there were a variety of issues that were different from the ones that they would normally deal with uh, uh, even during an operation, um, these were strategic issues uh, that they needed to confer with their colleagues and other organizations. How do we announce this to the public? How do we organize um, the uh, isolation of the area where the bombs went off so we can search for other uh, potential uh, ordinance, that we can gather evidence, um, we can try to figure out what happened uh, and who was responsible for it, uh, should we shut down the MBTA? Um, uh, but if we shut down the MBTA, then all the people who have assembled to watch the marathon are going to have a very hard time getting home. What do we do with those people? There are dozens, uh, actually thousands of backpacks and other things all over the area that people had abandoned. Um, do they have explosives in them, et cetera? And so these strategic uh, questions um, including questions about how to relate to the public and communicate information to the public uh, were very important for the senior people to deal with, but at the same time there were a variety of tactical issues uh, that were uh, uh, pressing and that the subordinates of these, in these organizations, in the police department, the fire department, the National Guard, um, the EMS people, that they had to deal with. And on an ordinary day, uh, the uh, field commanders would probably have conferred on at least some issues, say, with the chief of the uh, commissioner of police and uh, reviewed what they were planning to do and got an okay for it. Uh, but in this setting, that was dragging the uh, senior people away from the strategic conversations that were quite important. Um, and as a result of that, um, they felt pulled in two different directions. And it was natural for those people to gravitate towards the tactical issues um, because those were the things that they felt most comfortable with, they were the things they did on a daily basis, and yet the strategic issues were the crucial ones. Uh, the governor and the state emergency management director recognized that this was the case. Um, here is Governor Patrick, by the way. He led, uh, uh, they uh, didn't exactly isolate, but they took the senior people into a separate room so they could confer with each other, um, and responsibility was passed down to second and third in command of these uh, organizations. Several of the leaders of these organizations said to us afterwards um, that they weren't certain whether their seconds in command 
were really ready to take on that kind of responsibility. In other cases, they said they definitely were. The ones that were skeptical about it and concerned about it um, realized that they hadn't created a situation where they had backups who were fully qualified and fully comfortable uh, with playing the role of the most senior leader. And uh, they recognized that they needed to uh, make sure that they were giving the people that work for them um, opportunities in regular work to exercise responsibility uh, so that if um, in a crucial situation the chief was gone uh, or injured uh, or as in this instance occupied with strategic matters um, that the others could take over the leadership responsibility, make decisions, feel confident and in return have the trust of the people that work for them to be able uh, to follow. Um. So this is another version of the same picture. Uh, this is two hours to the minute after the bombing. So by that time, they've already formed a senior command group. They've got themselves organized. They've had some discussions, and they're ready to give a press conference, uh, which is basically, and, and essentially everything they said in that press conference was actually accurate. So they didn't speculate about things. They didn't have, uh, and the people present are the director of the FBI, right from the right, the director of the FBI, police commissioner, the governor. The guy behind the governor is the head of the MBTA police. This is Carmen Ortiz, who's the district, the, the um, federal, federal prosecutor. prosecutor. And Tim Alban is the superintendent of the Massachusetts State Police. Uh, and there are a couple of other people that don't show up in the picture. So that's a pretty good start at getting the right groups of people together to begin to manage this event. And they are making their first public presentation within two hours literally to the minute, of the bomb going off. That's, that's, that's impressive. And importantly, to recognize there was a, uh, a very significant collaboration and cooperative relationship between the senior political leaders, um, particularly the uh, governor and Mayor Menino of Boston, um, who was actually in the hospital and uh, sedated, um, but who discharged himself from the hospital and came to the scene a little later first press conference. They had another one to give him a chance to speak to the public. Um, and that uh, collaboration between the political leadership um, and the operational chiefs of the various services um, worked very well um, and was also critical in being able to, uh, in enabling the uh, agencies to operate very effectively. Um, communication. So, Arne, just um, a process observation here. We said we were going to do, do the slides in about 45 minutes. That gives you another six minutes for the other half of the slides. <laughs> so just, just, I'm just, you can't see the clock from where you're standing, so I'm just making this observation I'm for you. I'm just long-winded. Um, <laughs> so communication was a major feature as well. The, um, uh, during the first day or two, there were regular press conferences uh, the public was informed, um, but as Monday turned into Tuesday, uh, the criminal investigation began to come to the fore, um, and perhaps quite not, and taken over by both the FBI and the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, um, and they start they stopped giving regular information of the sort that uh, had been done on the first couple of the first day. Um, there were a few. Uh, uh, press conferences during those next couple of days. Uh, there was a lot of social media activity uh, that was pushed out by, particularly by the Boston Police Department, which was quite effective in using uh, uh, 
social media, uh, but the frequency and uh, openness of the public communication diminished during those couple of days that uh, the criminal investigation was in the lead. The negative consequence of that was that it allowed rumors and speculation to go rampant. And of course, you've got various uh, uh, electronic media that are on 24-7. You've got uh, enormous numbers of social media that are, doing, that are out there. Um, and the result was that there were uh, people who were, who were identified as the alleged bombers incorrectly, but their photographs were put out. Uh, newspapers uh, even reported that. There were stories about, um, there were rumors that there had been an arrest made and helicopters started circling the federal courthouse downtown where the uh, uh, supposed uh, arrestee was going to be taken. Uh, none of this turned out to be uh, correct. Uh, and it suggests the importance of keeping a flow of information to the public um, so that there is uh, accurate information that counteracts the kinds of rumors that naturally spring up in this instance. Um, the, um, as I mentioned, there was a good deal of cooperation between the political leaders and the public safety people. There also was uh, enormously uh, a positive public cooperation. Uh, when the shelter in place was announced uh, that affected, I think, five towns uh, and then a lockdown in, in Watertown, uh, there was very, very high, um, very, very high compliance. Uh, this is a picture of Kenmore Square taken during the day on Friday when the shelter in place was in effect. Um, I don't think any of us have ever seen Kenmore Square during the daytime that empty. Um, the uh, and the search in uh, Watertown uh, went on quite effectively, and people were. Uh, generally quite open and allowing uh, people to come in and uh, search their homes or their garages uh, to make sure that the terrorist wasn't hiding there. So um, preparation makes a big difference and it can pay tremendous dividends in terms of what happens. Uh, but we also have recognized that sometimes these events occur and we're going to be operating in a response mode um, and our response is going to have to, as Dutch mentioned, is going to have to go way beyond the things that we've actually prepared for. Um, and we feel that there is a framework uh, of thinking about this, at least three tasks that have to be accomplished. First is to stop the killing, uh, to disrupt as uh, fast as possible uh, the actions of the people who are uh, causing mayhem um, and, uh, and stop them not only from shooting but uh, at least immobilize them. Secondly, um, there's a medical response. Uh, these are horrific events that leave people brutally wounded um, in ways that hospitals are not used to dealing with. Automatic weapons create uh, very dangerous and difficult wounds that are quite different from what people will see from household accidents or from car accidents or other kinds of things that will cre create um, bleeding. Um, and sometimes the medical surge has to occur um, while the incidents are still going on, as was certainly true in, uh, in Paris and was also true in uh, Las Vegas and a number of other situations. And finally, there needs to be a healing process, uh, that these are profoundly disturbing events for the people who live through them, for their families and friends. Um, they're disturbing for the general public. Uh, for those of us who are here in the Boston area, 
um, at the time of the marathon, even if we weren't at the scene, as Dutch and I were not, it still uh, becomes a wound that you feel. Um, it's an attack on your, uh, your community. Um, the marathon is, is very much a shared event in the Boston area that people feel emotionally uh, attached to. And so this was a, a psychological trauma that people felt. Um, and the community as a whole needs to be able to begin to heal. So Art, I'm going to suggest that we stop here uh, just and take some questions. We've got the framework yeah, and we've got some. And, and we can go on. There's additional material we can show you. Let me just quickly on these three items. Um, how we've seen these in different recent events. So stop the killing. The, the traditional doctrine for confronting active shooters was to form up a team and then when you had a team assembled to go and, and confront the, uh, the attacker. It, actually, to say, even to say that, there wasn't really a doctrine, but that was kind of how teams tended to operate. Uh, there was a lot of criticism of that in Columbine. Uh, turns out the criticism is not really justified. The, uh, that, that's a whole other story. But more recently, the doctrine has been intentionally changed. And the doctrine is now that uh, any armed respondent should try to disrupt the event as quickly as possible on the theory that an ongoing event is worse than whatever will happen if you try to disrupt it. Uh, it's not obvious that that's always true, but, but so far we've got a couple of very good examples where it is true. The Bataclan, two lightly armed French police officers, literally in shirt sleeves, it was a warm evening, and with 9mm handguns, disrupted no that event. No, no body armor. Uh, disrupted that weapons. event, and, uh, and the dynamic of the event changed as of their entry, and no further uh, injuries took place to the people who were then uh, under threat. Uh, the same is true in Umpqua, the Oregon uh, college where there was a shooting in, also in 2015. Uh, the, the disruption of the event, as soon as police officers got there, they, they went in immediately, confronted the uh, attacker, and the event ended uh, almost instantly after that. Uh, and, they're very, and, and this is what didn't happen at the Pulse nightclub. At the Pulse nightclub, the in assailant Orlando. in Orlando was in the club for hours uh, after the initial attack. And while people were trying to figure out how to how to um, confront them, uh, it also now uh, so yesterday's news. It's a little unclear what happened in Las Vegas. Uh, whether there could have been a faster response to this to the site of the shooting because the shooter in Las Vegas shot through his door five minutes before he started shooting out the window, and and there was a report from someone who was injured there, a security guard who was injured there. Uh, that he had been shot and that there was an active shooter in this location. Um, so we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about, uh, about what happened and, and how, how long it took for people to get there and why. Stop the dying. Stop the dying means uh, in the aftermath of these events, there are often very grievously wounded people who can still be saved but only if you get immediate medical attention. We used to say a golden hour. In these wounds, it's a golden few minutes. And so uh, in various of these events, we've seen the medical, the doctrine is medical stays out until the zone is cleared by law enforcement. Uh, we've seen very aggressive movement of medical resources into these, uh, event, into these areas before they were fully cleared. And that's a, an issue of doctrine that is now being rethought and reexamined. You have to keep the medical folks safe, but on the other hand, we need more aggressive treatment. And in the, just to clarify that a little bit, the uh, responders talk about a, a hot zone where there is 
action going on. Law enforcement is using weapons. A warm zone where um, the uh, uh, it's not clear whether the action is over or not. Uh, there still is considerable danger, um, and it might flare up again. And then finally, a cold zone uh, where there is reasonable certainty that it is a safe area. And the doctrine until recently has been that the medical people would work only in the cold zone, that they didn't enter the warm zone um, and start uh, giving care to people. Uh, but in the uh, situations that we've talked about, particularly the, uh, in Paris, uh, but to a lesser extent in Boston, where people started administering medical care when there was no certainty that, the, uh, that all the bombs had already gone off, uh, only in retrospect do we know that the event was over, um, the um, medical people have started to operate. And so the question uh, that these uh, various public safety professions have asked is, how do we create conditions in which we can get medical care to people as fast as possible, um, but also keep the medical responders safe because they're unarmed, they're not trained uh, to fight off terrorists or other kinds of attackers. And there have been a bunch of different suggestions, each of which has uh, its challenges and uh, nobody's come up with a perfect answer yet. Why don't we stop here and see if you have questions or comments or things that you'd like to direct our attention to or other things you'd like to know about. Um, thanks. I, I realize, I, I really appreciate this work and it's important obviously. Uh, I can't help but ask, and I think it's a little far afield from your focus, but in the field of health, public health, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yep. What about prevention? And I, and, and you talked about the, the planner is thinking str strategically as opposed to tactically. If we think as Americans strategically about this kind of thing, do we not have to start thinking about other things to get at the sources, the, to, to, to get at prevention rather than constantly yep. just building a better police, more effective police? It's an important question. In our larger work, Arne and I have framed the response part, which is what we're talking about here, in the context of what we call a comprehensive risk framework, uh, which begins with prevention and mitigation. So what can you do to change the nature of these events? So part of that would be security arrangements, and so there are some comments about that that come out of this work. Uh, part of it is about the, the way in which events in general are managed uh, so as to... Uh, try to reduce the the opportunities for uh, people who want to do harm. Uh, if I were going to do, if there were one thing I could do by waving a wand, well, actually, there are probably more than one, uh, but uh, one that is involved in many of the active shooting events, not all, but many of the active shooting events in the U.S., and many of the most deadly, uh, you have to say mental illness is a significant component of this. And so mo much more active... Uh, engagement uh, in that domain would be, and it would, to me, fit within this uh, risk reduction kind of framework. Uh, but we, we very much agree with the spirit of your question uh, and more thinking about the issues of how, how and when we assemble crowds, uh, how you handle security for crowds. The, the, the problem, there are two problems there. One is, so we've got a, hard, a reasonably hard security perimeter around the Stade de France. What that does is to create an area just outside the security zone that has a bunch of people who are basically completely unprotected and in fairly high density uh, circumstances. So w we may need to do some more thinking about how to, how to arrange events so as to minimize those kinds of opportunities.
But these are incredibly difficult problems. So think of an experience that almost everyone in the room has had, which is going to an airport and dealing with security. So there's a security perimeter where people are searched. But up until you get to that security perimeter, there is no uh, serious security. And people congregate. They have suitcases. Nobody knows what's in the suitcases. They've got uh, winter coats on, uh, all sorts of things. Um, I remember the experience of going to Charles de Gaulle Airport after we had just spent a week talking to the public safety people in Paris. And there was a huge crowd that was uh, pushing up to the security area. And you looked around, and there were literally probably a 1,000 or more people who were there. And it was certainly a, a, a very uh, ripe place for a terrorist to attack if someone were motivated to do that and had the capability of doing it. So wherever you draw the line, there's going to be an area outside um, that will be vulnerable. And of course, it takes time to get people through the security checks. Yep. I will say that a big part of the fixed event planning is devoted to trying to figure out how to minimize the possibilities of attacks and not just to what would we do if it happened. And there is part of your question was mitigation, and there are a variety of larger and smaller mitigation measures that, uh, that are taken. So, for example, a, a, a non-trivial but still small example is um, that from um, the battlefield experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, the United States has learned the value of tourniquets as a, uh, uh, as a measure to prevent bleeding um, and to save lives that otherwise would be lost by people who would bleed out uh, before they reach medical care. And uh, increasingly, public safety officers, police, firefighters, EMS, uh, come with tourniquets that are part of their standard equipment that they carry around with them or have easily right. accessible um, on a daily basis so they can apply those if, the, uh, um, if necessary. And there were a number of examples in Boston, and right. especially in Paris, uh, where, there's, where the, that uh, preparation um, mitigated the uh, damage that was done by the, the terrorists and saved people's lives because they could get to the hospitals um, before they bled out. And actually, you can think of this as part of response, but we actually think of it as mitigation in the sense that it changes the consequences of the event, uh, is what happens in hospitals, is the ability of hospitals to absorb very sudden large numbers of critically wounded people. And the hospital's been quite remarkable about this. Uh, we're still trying to, to connect with people in the UK to have a look at the Manchester example. We've looked extensively at Paris. We've looked extensively in Boston. Uh, I looked a bit in Oregon. Uh, and the hospitals in all of those cases were able suddenly to handle a dramatically larger number of patients than they are normally in, intended to get or even had a plan to get. And were able to improvise ways of surging their capacity uh, in ways that significantly reduced the, the deadly consequences of the attacks. And that, that's something we need to continue to, to work on and help other hospitals to understand, learn from that experience, to understand how it is that you can, can do that. And you can, get a, you can get a sense of the scale of that uh, uh, response. Uh, one hospital in Paris that we've uh, uh, talked to people at extensively um, told us about the fact that the day of the attacks that we're describing, there was a citywide hospital exercise for mass casualty response. 
and each of the hospitals that was part of the public hospital system, about 20 of them, um, also part of the University of Paris uh, uh, system, these hospitals um, were supposed to do a drill about how they would handle a mass casualty event. Uh, the hospital that we are uh, know people at um, on a normal day would have two or possibly on a bad day three traumatic injury cases that they would have to deal with. And their exercise design was to deal with seven or nine cases. That, that's what they considered a, a mass casualty attack. Uh, that evening when these terrorist attacks occurred, they wound up with 53 cases. And they had to completely reorganize on the fly the way in which they managed uh, the flow of patients into their uh, traumatic care units, how they organized their doctors, um, how they uh, cleared space um, and created opportunities, uh, uh, you know, for uh, space for people who were uh, critically injured, um, all of which they did very successfully in improvising. Um, but one of the things that we've uh, uh, developed as a recommendation is that hospitals need to train some of their personnel to be ready to manage that kind of situation, to think about uh, production and operations management issues, the kind of things that Mark Fagan teaches about here at the Kennedy School or that is uh, taught at the business school, um, uh, it, rather than thinking about single patient and a, uh, a group of um, healthcare people that surround that person as an isolated unit. Yeah, the critical insight here is that the medical system in general works with the unit of analysis as a single patient. And everybody's trained that way. Everybody, if you're on that team, you're working on that patient, it's a bounded problem. Whatever is wrong is wrong right here. And that's all you have to worry about. And the system operates with a team working on a patient on a good day. It works with a team operating on a patient. And then when they're done, there might be another patient or there might be a pause. Uh, and then the system... He has ways of bringing in, resupplying, and so on, if you've used supplies in the process, restocking the room, and so, so forth. But in, in this kind of event, uh, you, at one level, you still want that to be the focus of the individual teams. In other words, the team should be still working on a single patient. So we, we describe this as a microsite. Uh, the idea is that you say the, the surgical team that's working on a particular trauma patient with a gunshot wound should only be focusing on that patient. But somebody needs to be thinking about the fact that what you've got is a flow of patients and you need a flow of supplies and a flow of blood and a flow of other uh, activities and management of the OR resource so you don't wind up clogging it up with minor wounds at the front end when you've got major wounds coming in behind that. So somebody needs to be stepping above this and looking at the the pattern of the event as a whole and managing the event as an event rather than managing the individual patients. And doctors are not generally trained to do that. That's just not the role that they do. Now, in each of these cases, individual doctors stepped forward and realized that that was what was needed and did it. Uh, somebody did it at the door to the ER at the Brigham here. Somebody did it at, at, two people did it in the Paris hospital, one at the door to the emergency room and the other at the door to the trauma center. And both of them were senior physicians, realized that this was going to be a problem, and they stopped. They literally, they, they do this when they tell you this. They took their hands off the patients. They stopped, you know, their natural instinct, all their training says, you know, go in and start working on this patient. And what they did was step back and say, okay, I'm just going to do this because this needs to be done. I'm going to root patients to the right place and try to get the resources organized. And so that to us is a piece of, of lesson that we can take that we can 
install, we hope, in other locations that will save you know, many future lives. And so it's, it's not exactly like prevention, but it's at least, you know, it's a f it, it reduces the risk of people who are going to be able to get better medical care. It's also the direct analog of the problem that I cited before, namely the fact that senior leaders of the public safety agencies, the police, the firefighters, et cetera, had to step up to right. a strategic level and move away from the kinds of tactical actions and decisions that they would have made on an ordinary day. Um, and that means both that they have to be ready to step up and take on different kinds of responsibilities, as Dutch just elaborated for the medical people, and it means they have to have people who can move into the tactical leadership right. roles that they would ordinarily play. And, this uh, is, yeah, sorry. and you can see that in both in seemingly very different professional settings, policing on the one side, as we've described, and also uh, the medical side. Yeah, and, and this is something we've seen in a lot of different events, actually. Uh, so not just these violent attack situations, but many others. The more different the situation is from the ordinary, the more novelty it has, scale, unprecedented things, combinations of things that are making it difficult, they're all in conflict with each other, and it's difficult to figure out what to do. The more it's different from what we do on ordinary days, the more the senior people have a new problem that they have to figure out. How are we going to combine these resources to deal with this problem? What is the problem, first of all? What is the set of things that are going on here? And then how are we going to use the resources that we have creatively to try to deal with that, which we never had to figure out before because we never saw this event before. So the more different the event is, the more different is the role of the senior people. But if, the closer you get to the street, the closer you get to where the people are actually doing direct response and direct aid to people, medical, uh, the uh, law enforcement, other aspects of that. The closer you get to the street, the more the task is just like it is on any other day, except maybe there's more of it to do, and you have to do it a little quicker, or maybe you can't stay until it's complete. But So you, you move a little bit more quickly through it. But the actual task, you know, so you know, we're talking about somebody trying to do an extraction from a building that had collapsed in an earthquake. Now, the earthquake creates a whole set of circumstances that are of a scale that just requires senior, the senior leadership to think about how we're going to stage things, move resources, get additional help, and so on. But at the level of extracting somebody from a building, uh, we only really know one way to do that. And the fact that there are many other people who also need this help doesn't change the way I'm going to try to shore up the concrete in this thing to get enough space to pull this particular victim out. I, there's basically only one way to do that, and we're going we're gonna to do it the way we ordinarily do. Bob? Um, let, me, let me ask you a, a very specific question, and um, because I've been sitting back here and thinking about a recent experience, um, which was Sunday afternoon at the Red Sox game, and which um, the guy from Las Vegas had presumably uh, Checked yeah. out things. Right. Um, we were all told to get there early. Uh, our bags, the, the usual stuff. Actually, at the gate, there was nothing different, except that at one point, somebody, some guy who was clearly in charge of something, uh, yelled, "Close the gates!" And then a bunch of cops ran out. But I never saw anything of that. The interesting thing was once we got to the seats, up on top of the roof was actually at, at least two guys, and I assume behind me as well. Um, but what they didn't do, for example, um, was close down Brookline Avenue to traffic. Uh, the hospitals are right down the street. Um, you would have thought that, listening to you, they would have said, well, you know, we should make sure 
Brookline average was a disaster during the Red Sox game anyway. And so why would you, I mean, I can't imagine driving down Brookline Avenue, but right. you would w- want that uh, clear. clear. Right. What else would you Bob, have done? Bob, just to be clear, this is, this is just a road that goes right past Fenway Park and then about three or four blocks further uh, west, uh, I'm sorry, further north, it, um, it goes by several of the, the hospitals, hospitals in yeah. Boston. Yeah, the trauma center hospitals. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what usefulness the guys were on the roof. Um, obviously, the tall buildings near Fenway Park, from which you could have mimicked um, Las Vegas, are, are condos, not hotels. But what, what would you guys have done if, you had, if they had called you up and said, okay, what should we do about uh, the game? Besides put the guys on the roof and make sure we all go through the metal detectors carefully. Uh, the the close-in things you would do basically the same as you observe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm confident that what they did was to stand in Fenway and look around, and see what the vantage points were from which it was potentially threatened, and do what they could to figure out how to assess the threat from any of those locations. Um, as you observe, those are private residences, so you can't exactly knock on doors and say you want to come in. You can ask, but you can't necessarily get access. Um, the, there are technologies for being able to localize fire, firearms uh, shots so that if you have, if you have the equipment set up, uh, you will very quickly be able to tell where shots are coming from. And that, by I think, sound? By sound, right. And that is, I suspect, the purpose of the people on the roof, uh, was to provide an active response. Uh, this is, again, disrupt the event as quickly as you can. Uh, you know, if somebody had been shooting back at the guy in the Mandalay Bay, uh, he might not have gotten off quite as many rounds as he did. I, I think, though, Bob, what you're, what you're seeing is, a, is an incomplete response right. Right. to a new problem incomplete that, hadn't been, that right. hadn't been thought through yet because of how close it was to the Las Vegas event, it's a, uh, what our colleague from New York, Joe Pfeiffer, calls a vertical threat, um, which uh, was seen in Mumbai uh, some years ago, but mostly with the use of fire inside the building rather than uh, shooting outside the building. Um, The people in Boston, I suspect, have not finished their work of figuring out how they can uh, do a better job of protecting Fenway Park. Um, and, you know, with e- we're dealing with thinking adversaries who are trying to outsmart the preparations that have been made, which is one of the reasons that law enforcement tries to keep at least some of those preparations secret. Um, and, uh, but they're obviously trying to uh, develop methods that will sidestep or overcome the kinds of preparations that are made. But they, they, were, they were defending, it seems to me, against Las Vegas rather than the car bomb drive up or something. Yes. Uh, yes. So, I mean, you have noticed concrete barricades going up around lots of places where people gather. So there's an attempt to keep large vehicles at a greater distance. Uh, there's... Right. No, that's right. And, and so this is another. So we also have seen these vehicle attacks now. So how do you prevent somebody in a truck from driving into a crowd? Um, the police here were ahead on that 
score. If you look around at things like the July 4th gathering, you see sand trucks and other heavy vehicles out blocking uh, street access to the areas where the crowds are going to be. In fact, police here were very surprised in the, the truck attack in Nice that the that that had never that they didn't have any such you know preventive measures. So there again is another you know it's a security measure again, um, and it, you know there's always an edge to it, but uh, there's at least a, an attempt to understand what some of the nature of those threats are going to be and to to figure out preventive measures for those. Um, so, but. The other thing there's some reliance on is the ability to detect people assembling large amounts of explosives. Um, that's just an intelligence counterterrorism yeah. matter. Oh yeah, and so but, you yeah what you hope is that somebody can't come by in uh, an 18 wheeler full of TNT. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for uh, sharing the research today. I had a question about the uh, the stage in the process around healing, starting the healing process, and really understanding. How early can that start? And then specifically, what are the roles of senior leaders and senior politicians within helping that to, uh, to take place? Um, so if you could just comment on that, that would be helpful. So the thought here is that these events are physically and emotionally traumatic. And the emotional trauma needs to be understood as a very significant consequence, which is actually pretty widespread. So not just the people who are directly involved, but a lot of other people like us, people who are you know, concerned about the fact that events like this are taking place in places that we've been before or have visited. So the healing process of having, so I think it begins, we always observe the first responder is the survivor, him or herself. The second is the bystander who's next to them. The third, maybe, you know, maybe not even yet, uh, would be a uniformed first, quote, first responder who comes to help. All of that is trying to deal with the immediate consequences. The, the healing part, um, so the healing begins as soon as you begin uh, actively engaging with, uh, with medical care. But the larger challenge of bringing communities together, um, so you, you see in these the memorials, that I think is a, is a, a useful thing for people. Uh, notice, though, you know, you had to be struck by, in the immediate aftermath of the Paris attack, the following day, there were these huge gatherings of crowds with very large, you know, amounts of flowers and candlelight vigils, and, and those looked like very soft targets to me, and that made me very nervous, actually, if they're, because it would be, be a relatively easy thing for someone to stage one of these attacks and have a second round attack that wasn't for 20 minutes later, but for you know 24 hours later. So, so again, you got security issues around this. But so what, what I would say, Nick, is that uh, I think this is something effective political leaders are able fairly quickly to offer perspective about the nature of the event. What have we seen? Who are we? So in, in, the, in the teaching about this, we say there, there are four questions that people are, are focused on. Um, the first is, who's a we? Who, who is included in this? So when, at the Pulse nightclub, do you say, well, this is an attack on gay people? Or do you say, this is an attack on the entire society? So who articulates that and what they say is very important. So first of all, there's a question, who, who's the we who should feel like we're involved here? Who's the community that is going through this together? Second question, what are our values? What are the things that we most need to notice in circumstances like this? 
do we, uh, are we frightened? Are we now angry and willing to give up our civil liberties? Or are we strong and resilient and saying we're going to continue to defend our way of life by continuing to act in our way of life? So you know, what's the narrative? What, what do we say about that? So who are we? Uh, what are our values? Uh, what was the event? What actually happened here? So actually, let me give you an example of a, of a narrative like this, which I think was very effective. Uh, there was a bombing at a Shia mosque in Kuwait a few years ago. Kuwait is a Sunni-majority state. The emir of Kuwait is a Sunni. Uh, and the Shia are a relatively small minority. There's a bombing at the Shia mosque. The emir, on hearing of this, rushes out of the room and jumps in his car and says, take me to the mosque. And his aides say, no, we can't do that because you don't know what's going to happen and the crowd there is going to be angry and you, know, we, you can't go there. And he, said, and he insists. And he, and he takes off and his security group is trying to catch up with him as he is converging into this zone. Okay, so here he is, the Sunni emir of Kuwait. This is, has already been announced, this is an ISIS bombing. ISIS has taken credit for this. ISIS is a Sunni enterprise. It's actually a jihadi sect uh, splinter off of uh, Sunni Islam. Uh, it has, and it claims it to be the one true faith, and it, it has claimed bomb, this uh, bombing already. So now think, there are two narratives here. There are two answers to these four questions. There's ISIS's answer. What's ISIS's answer? Who are we? It's we, the true believers against everybody else, the Shia and the whole world. And we're going to win, and we're going to. So that's who we are. And what are our values? Our values are our one true faith, and everybody else is a disbeliever, uh, an infidel. Uh, and uh, what happened here is the beginning of the end of days battle. Uh, you know, it's a part of the establishment of the caliphate and the coming of the end of days. Uh, and uh, what should people like us do in circumstances like that's the fourth question. So what should we now do? Who are we? What are our values? What should we do? Uh, the what should we do for ISIS is you should join the, join the movement. You should become part of our movement. So, so that's one narrative that's out there. So the emir goes to this site and he stands up in front of this crowd and there is chaos and mayhem and you know, angry and unhappy, uh, you know, traumatized people. What is he going to say? So he reaches out his arms and he says, you are all my children. This is the Sunni leader of Kuwait saying to the Shia community now gathered, you are all my children. Okay, so who are we? We are Kuwaitis. We are all together. We are civilized people all together. What are our values? We're in this... Uh, what happened here? What happened here was a terrorist attack by a bunch of you know, extremists, uh, and we are not going to let them uh, destroy us. And so what should people like us do? We should come together. So that's, that, to me, is a good example of almost instinctive, but immediate. That was a starting of the healing process. So I think it's, it's as fast as you can do it. Uh, it's uh, so even that that uh, first we saw that first within two hours of the Boston Marathon bombing, it was mostly about the event, what people should do, but it was also a form of reassurance for us all. Uh, I think the healing, at one level, started in that during that press conference. 
here's, here's who we are, here's what we care about, here's what we believe in. Uh, and so, and here we are, collectively, we're going to lead our way through this. So I think uh, my answer is as soon as possible as a, and, and think through what you want the answers to those questions to be. Look at Rudy Giuliani in 9-11. It's another very good example. Rudy Giuliani's book says what he did was to direct the police to move the police barrier and do this and that and the other thing. I think almost none of that was, was uh, needed. It wasn't what they needed from him. The police had already moved the barricades. You know, that wasn't, they, they didn't need his advice about that. What Rudy Giuliani was, was great at was being present and answering those four questions implicitly. Who are we? What are our values? What happened here? What does that mean we should do? I know it's inc incredible. It's just yeah. an amazing thing. Right. And, and then he did it repeatedly again over the next yeah. few days. And he did it in a multi-level multi way. And whatever you think of Rudy Giuliani before 9-11 and whatever. And after. <laughs> and what you think of him in the post-9-11 period, especially the long post-9-11, he was brilliant in the week afterwards. And he was on the air uh, on uh, New York One within yep. uh, an hour speaking in a calm uh, voice, uh, talking about what had happened. Um, he didn't allow himself to speculate. He was asked, how many people do you think died? And uh, he said, we don't have any way of knowing, but it'll be too much to bear. It'll be more than we can bear, but we will bear it. And, um, and then during the week, he made a number of public statements that captured some of the things the Dutch was talking about. Yeah. So one of them was to say, I've been reading about London during the Blitz of right. World War II and Winston Churchill, and he is identifying New Yorkers with another large city that had suffered, actually more than New York had suffered, uh, a city that Americans feel a, a, a close affinity to. Um, and he talked about uh, the way that Londoners were able to bear up under repeated bombing experiences. Uh, but he also spoke uh, at a personal level, and he uh, got up at a press conference and he said, I'm go going to a wedding today. And he was going to give away the bride. Um, he had been asked to do this by a woman uh, from Queens or one of the outer boroughs um, who said that her father had died within the previous year, her husband had died, and then her son had been killed at the World Trade Center. And he was a firefighter, if I remember correctly. Um, and Therefore, there was no male member of the family to give away the bride. And the daughter was marrying a um, police officer, so there was some symbolism there. And she had asked Giuliani to give away the bride, and he described this. And then he said, I asked her, how can you bear up under the uh, terrible losses that you've experienced in the last 12 months? And she, he quoted her as saying something, you can't escape the pain. I remember the things that... Uh, that cause it, um, but I also try to look at the good things in life, like my daughter's wedding, um, and allow myself to enjoy those things and look to the future. And so this is an anecdote that he's telling, but notice the way in which London at one level, this very personal story about an ordinary New Yorker who suffered uh, terrible losses in her personal life in the previous year. Um, and he's essentially preaching to New Yorkers, and he also spoke about uh, not having any prejudice, not blaming any particular religious group uh, or national group for what happened, uh, but rather to focus on the individuals who had committed the act. Now, there, it's true there's plenty of work still still uh, to be done in that zone. But 
So this is a not a pleasant subject, obviously. Uh, it's so from ours and in my perspective, it is. We think it's really important. We think it's valuable. We think there are important advances that we can have made and, and can make. Um, but it's not. You, it's very hard to describe this as fun. It's incredibly interesting in some circumstances, but it, but it's not fun to look at because you have to look at these, you know, horrible events. But in them, once in a while, we do find uh, some real amazing uh, stories of heroism and people who seem to have instincts for being able to do this right. And that, to me, is a hopeful thing. And so we're trying to capitalize on that. And actually, this is a sort of hopeful note on maybe we should go to small. We said we weren't going to keep you past 530. Um, Arne, maybe you want to make a closing observation. Um, uh, maybe we can go to small group play and, and answer uh, individual questions if people want to stay. Yeah, I think that uh, the, um, the lessons of each of these events are somewhat different. Uh, there definitely are, are broad themes that we've tried to identify, and there are a few more that in the presentation that we didn't get a chance to present, and there are more that aren't in the presentation. Um, so on the one hand, there are there are uh, idiosyncratic aspects to it as well as more generalizable ones. Um, we live in an era where these events seem to be coming fast and furious. Um, we learn something, uh, we being the community of people who are interested in, in uh, being able to respond effectively, um, but we also face uh, uh, antagonists, enemies, or individuals who are trying to uh, outthink what uh, public safety people are trying to do. Um, and so this is a constantly evolving uh, situation that is uh, a very difficult one to deal with, uh, but where there are lessons uh, that can be learned and that can be applied and that can um, hopefully benefit areas that uh, might face these kinds of events in the future. So thank you guys for coming. Um, thank you for your interest. Uh, if you have suggestions or other thoughts for us, we'd be happy to hear them or if other questions. Um, but um, let's all go forward and hope we never have to use any of this again. Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>